Good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Alyssa. I'm one of the pastors here at Central City. It's so good to be in worship. Um, I got to tell you, I'm excited that I get to bring you this first word of 2019. This is the first, maybe you listen to podcast sermons, but this is the first time that you're in worship in 2019. I'm so glad that, um, that we're all here. Um, I feel like God has been preparing this for in me for this community for a while, so um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a good one, I think, for us. But it's also going to be difficult. So we're in this new series, Soul Detox, um, and 2018 was a rough year, right, for our world, for uh, people, for our country. There were a lot of good moments. I think a lot of us had some good moments, but it was still, it was definitely a hard year. And it brought out a lot of just nasty stuff in people, right? Like if you're on social media, you know what I'm talking about. There's just a lot of nasty stuff out there. There's toxins, poisons, um, like fear and bitterness, rage, shame, insecurity, envy, hatred. These toxins that contribute to a negative, unhealthy life, unhealthy faith, unhealthy perspective, and these toxins that I think have just been like growing or spreading or or something this year are stunting our growth as humans, as God's children. So I don't know about you, but I just want to leave all that in 2018, right? Like a lot of people choose a word or a theme for the year, and I think you know, for me, I just want to leave the toxins in 2018. I'm ready to get these out of my system so that I can be healthy and live more like Jesus who cre- Jesus created me to be. And I think that that is something that all of us should always want to do, always want to be living into who God created us to be. So we're going to be on this journey together for the next couple of weeks, this soul detox, um, getting rid of these toxins that are, are filling our, our lives Um, A detox in like the most medical sense is to rid the body of poisonous substances. Now, this is mostly with drugs or alcohol, but it can be anything that poisons the body. Um, In a detox, though, even medically, the mind, body, and soul are all involved. Um, A true detox is when a person makes an intentional decision in their mind that, that they're going to they're gonna get rid of this. And then the detox moves to the body, which is what we think of, removing the toxins from a body. But sometimes this is the only part we think of, but even AA, like Alcoholics Anonymous or NA, they'll talk about when you're going through this, that it's your mind, body, and soul, that there has to be something within us that it moves not just from the body, but it moves to the part of us that believes that we can change, that we can be different. It moves to our soul. So over the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to be talking about these different toxins, um, shame, unforgiveness, hatred, and others. And these are really difficult things to swallow. You're like, I woke up on Sunday morning, wanted to go to church, and we're talking about shame. (laughs) It's what we have always wanted, right? But really, in order for us to be able to live into who God created us to be and able to worship God with all we are, um, we need to be talking about these kinds of things. So our world is rampant with these toxins, and sometimes it's easier to keep living with them rather than to get rid of them, right? Sometimes it's just easier to just move on, know that they're there, but just, just keep them within us because I'm more comfortable here with the toxins than I, w- than I am going through the process to get rid of them. But I'm here to tell you that God created you for more. That God created you for full life. So the objectives um, on my part for this series is that we're going to do a couple of things. We're going to identify these toxins, shame, hatred, unforgiveness, these kinds of things. Because 
we don't know how to detox or, or what the antidote is unless we know what the toxin is, right? Like there are different ways to detox for different toxins. So we're going to identify the toxins. And then I want to see if we can replace the, whatever this poison is with something else in life. When we, rid of, when we rid ourselves of something destructive, is there something life-giving that we can put in its place so that the toxin doesn't have space in our life anymore? There's no more room for it. And then I want to get our whole self involved, mind, body, and soul, where we intentionally are doing this with our mind. We're moving around. There's some sort of physical activity. Our body is involved, and, and we're going to, to prayer. And, and one of the times I think if... Wherever you are with your prayer life, whether you don't pray or you pray all the time, increasing prayer during this soul detox is the first step. So we encourage you, uh, wherever you are, to begin praying with this. Um, and the last thing is to, to be able to put practices into place where we can resist the toxins in the future so that they don't have to come back into our lives. We're not only getting rid of them, but they're staying away and we're being able to live fully always. We were created for connection. And the most basic human longing is to be connected to other humans. Toxins like shame and hatred and envy, all of these disconnect us. Or at the very least, they hinder us, hinder our opportunity for connection. Sometimes we can be so used to these toxins that they're, and their effects that we don't know how, the damage that they're doing. So that's what we're going to be talking about in this series. So today we're talking about shame, which is exciting. It's my favorite thing to talk about. So before we do, let's pray. God, we come before you, and um, we did. We came here to worship you, to be um, in your presence where we know that you show up here. And God, we came to, uh, to be changed by you, to know that you are leading us into new life, that the old is gone and our life has come. And so, God, we pray that for today, that we could hear um, those places in our life where we have old, dead stuff that you are wanting to take off and to give us new life. So God, open our ears and our eyes to see where you're moving and where you're leading us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the beginning, we're going to go all the way back, Genesis. In the beginning, it says that we were created. We were created in God's likeness and it was good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, verse 31 says, it was very good. So in the beginning, it was very good. Everything was good. Can you say that every day here? We are so far from the beginning, right? Even the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, we learn that we were created for connection with God and with others. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So we can connect with God, and I think that God and, and the man were connecting because we were created in God's likeness. We have a part of God in us, and so we're able to have this connection with God like none other. But animals and humans are different, so God is saying, it's not good for this man to be alone, so let's see if, if they find a companion for this man. And so when God brought all the animals to see if there was this connection, if there could be a companion among the animals, there wasn't a connection. I'm not saying that we can't have a connection with a dog because, well, 
their dogs. I mean, we have connections with, but it's not a real connection, right? It's not a, it's not a mutual connection. There's not a deep understanding of what it means to be human. And so we can have a connection with a dog, right? But it's not fulfilling and it's not the connection that we're longing for and that we're created for. So we need connection based on understanding and empathy. So instead of God, when they couldn't find this animal to be a companion, God created another human. And the, the last verse of Genesis 2 is very important, verse 25. So Genesis 2:25 says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This verse says a lot to us. First, it says a lot about the relationships formed in chapter 2. So the, the relationship between this man and this woman were pure. They were full of belonging and connection. But this verse also is a little foreboding as we move into chapter 3. It lets us know what's about to come. They were naked. They felt no shame. They, it, was, it was full. Their, their relationship was pure, but... Eventually, there is shame, though, or it wouldn't have been shame. So before we get into looking at Genesis 3, I want to talk a little bit about shame. A lot of my, um, my understanding around shame has been shaped uh, by Brene Brown. She is a now, I think, world-famous um, shame researcher from the University of Houston. She has over 20 years of researching shame. She's written multiple books, which are all at the library. You can check them all out. Um, she's had TED Talks that have, have gone viral. Um, she is a speaker. She researches and speaks on shame, vulnerability, empathy, and courage. So all really difficult things, but all things that really fuel our connection with other humans. Brene's definition of shame after years of research is this. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Shame is the intensely painful feeling of, or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Shame is rooted in the fear that we will be disconnected from others because they will find out eventually that we are actually unworthy of their love and we don't actually belong. This fear that we will be disconnected from others. We were created for connection and so when we threaten with the possibility of disconnection, we experience shame. Now, everyone experiences shame. No one gets a pass. Everyone experiences shame. Now, the way, in which, the way in which we deal with shame or experience shame is different. But the nature of shame is that no one can know that we're experiencing shame or else they'll know that we're unworthy. It's kind of, it's this vicious cycle that, that as Brene says, it's created this silent epidemic. We all experience it. And yet, if, if you know that I'm experiencing shame, then, then we're disconnected. I don't belong anymore. And so I stay silent, and I don't talk about my shame. We all experience it, but we don't talk about it. We experience it, we feel it, we sometimes live with it for a lifetime, but we don't talk about it. Even saying shame, or maybe even hearing me say shame, makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to hear it, we don't want to see it, we just want to ignore that it's there, and everyone keep moving on, even though we know the detrimental effects it's having on us. Everyone has it, we don't want to talk about it. And when we hear shame or experience shame or see someone else close to us in shame, 
We want to run and hide, which is exactly what this man and this woman did in Genesis 3. They ran and hide, but we'll get to that in a minute. The less we talk about shame, though, the more control it has over our lives, clearly. The less we talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. So we're going to talk about it, clearly, because I keep saying shame, 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 shame. But before we talk about that, I'm just going to keep, keep going deeper. I want to clarify some language. Being able to appropriately, appropriately define and understand terms is important when we're talking about our emotions. We can't just say I'm angry all the time when sometimes I might be sad. Um, so we often use the terms embarrassment, guilt, humiliation, and shame interchangeably. These are all four words that kind of have similar experiences, but have, have deeper roots and deeper um, uh, in different ways that they live out in our lives. So in order for us to identify the specific toxin of shame in our life, we need to be able to describe the experience or the emotion correctly. And so we do tests on these experiences, right, in our own lives. We're like, okay, what am I actually feeling here? What makes me feel that way? Because when we do that, we can determine whether we're experiencing shame or guilt or embarrassment or whatever. And then we can appropriately respond to that experience. So embarrassment is we've all experienced embarrassing things. It's something that's funny and normal. It's embarrassing, but we know that it happens to other people too. I know that I'm not the only one that this has ever happened to. Like, I can, I actually say this, I've never done this, but like walking out of the bathroom with toilet paper on your shoe. I actually check when I leave bathrooms because I don't want that embarrassing situation because I know that it happens to other people and it's embarrassing, right? But it happens and we can laugh about it and move on and it eventually goes away. That's embarrassment. Guilt is probably the term that gets um, confused with shame the most. We talk about shame and guilt and we think that they're the same thing and they're just interchangeable. But guilt is based on our behaviors. Guilt is when we do something wrong or against our values. I did something bad. I shouldn't have done that. And guilt can be often a positive motivator for change. You feel guilty about something, and so you want to do something differently the next time. Apologize for that. Shame, on the, on the other hand, shame is not a motivator for change. But typically, shame leads to worse behavior or paralysis. Guilt can motivate us because it says, I did something bad. Shame paralyzes us because it says, I am bad. Shame says, I am bad. It's who I am. The danger of shame is that when I continue to tell myself I am bad, I eventually start to believe it, and then I start to own it. I am bad. I am bad. Uh, share my Several years ago, I actually... Actually, it was a couple months after Joe and I got married. I'm going to share my own shame story with you. Um, Joe and I got married, and uh, a couple months later, I was diagnosed with depression. And I went on medication, and I attempted some counseling. But in that season, um, before, before I was diagnosed with depression, I had three best friends. They were bridesmaids at our wedding. I had known all of them for years. They had known me. Um, but I was depressed, and so all of a sudden, I stopped returning their phone calls, their text messages, their Facebook messages, their feel like letters. Like they tried every avenue of communication to reach me, and I stopped returning all of it. I think at first I felt guilty because it had been so long. Like, oh, I haven't texted them in a week. Oh, I haven't texted them in a month. 
and it just kept going. And I think at first I felt guilty, so I would eventually like text and say, hey, we'll talk later or something like that. But that wouldn't happen. And so eventually they started texting and calling Joe and messaging Joe and reaching out through that way multiple times. And I still didn't do anything. I think I had always thought of myself as a bad friend. And so in this season, when I was depressed, it kind of intensified. I thought, I don't do the things that good friends do. I'm a bad friend. Hear the language? I'm a, I'm a bad friend. So in the season of depression, um, because I wasn't responding to my friends, and I started to tell myself that I, wasn't a bad, that I was a bad friend. And um, months went, went by, and then years, four years, we've been married six years, four years went by before I reached out to any of these people. And actually one of them I still haven't talked to, so six years later. Um, I felt shame around friendships. I think I, think I always had this... Um, idea about myself, like I said, that I thought that I was a bad friend. And so when I was in depression, I fell deeper into that shame, that it stopped being guilt, it started being shame. And it took me years to recognize how I was talking to myself, like six months ago. Um, Took me years to realize that I have this language about myself that I continue to say. I say, I am lazy. Like I say that all the time. Say, I am lazy. I'm a bad friend. And there are others that I'm not ready to share yet. But the, so the difference between guilt and shame is the guilt is focused on how our actions align with our values. So if I say, I'm being lazy right now, well, my value is to, to work hard and be productive. And so I'm not working, I'm not living within my values, so I can change that. But shame is focusing on who we are rather than what we're doing. So by me saying, I'm a bad, I'm a lazy person, well, then I feel like I can't change. This is just who I am. I'm lazy. I'm always going to be lazy. There's nothing I can do about it. And I'm just going to like go and curl up in a corner and continue to be lazy, which is what I do. Um, So shame corrodes the very part of us that believes that we can change and do better. Shame just completely takes that part of us away. Only years later am I able to understand what was happening in the season of my life. And I still struggle with friendships, creating or sustaining them, but I'm learning to talk to myself differently. I'm learning to say, I, I'm not really good at texting. I'm sorry, you're just going to have to work with me on that or, you know, whatever that means. But I, I am better about saying, about not saying I'm a bad person. When I was in shame, I hid. So I did. I hid because I wanted and desperately needed connection during those years. But if they found out that I was a bad friend, which I, they, they already knew that. They knew that I was not a good friend, that I didn't do good friend things. But if, I felt like if they found out that I was a bad friend, that they wouldn't want me, that they would leave me. And so I shielded myself from that by, by hiding, by... I tried to avoid disconnection with them by disconnecting with them. Shame doesn't make sense at all, right? Like, that's not logical at all. But anything is very powerful. And shame is self-protecting. So shame will do anything in its power to keep us in shame. It'll silence us. It'll cause us to rage so that those around us back up. It'll isolate us deeper and deeper into a pit. But knowing the difference between guilt and shame and other emotions is the first step. We have to identify this toxin before we can know how to detox. 
So I want to go back to Genesis 3. After thinking about shame and guilt, I went back and I read Genesis 3, and it all starts with lies. The first one who talks in Genesis 3 is the serpent. The serpent deceives the humans, and it was around their identity. The serpent wanted to convince the humans that their identity could be different or that it would be different than the identity that God intended for them. They said, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. So this man and this woman, they did something bad to achieve that, that desired identity, that, that lie that the, that the serpent had deceived them with. They did something bad. When they realized that they did something, but remember God said in Genesis 1 that it was good, that his creation was good, that the humans, very good. They did something bad in Genesis 3. When they realized they did something bad, they tried to cover it up. They, they tried to say, we did something bad against our values, against who God created us to be. They tried to cover it up. They literally tried to hide themselves. They created clothes out of leaves, and when they heard God walking in the garden, they ran and hid. Genesis 3.10, the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear of disconnection. Their fear of disconnection or rejection from God became shame. In their shame, they felt exposed. They felt like they were going to be found out and found unworthy and unlovable. So Adam, this is what happens with shame. Adam turns to blame. This is one of my favorite ways to pretend like I'm shielding my shame. I blame everyone around me. I'll blame the dog. I'll blame the remote. Because I don't want anyone else to know that I'm feeling shame. I'm just going to push it off, and it's, other, it's this other thing's fault that I'm responding this way. So blame. Then Eve, following suit, begins to blame as well. You can track this through Genesis 3. Adam blames, and then Adam blames Eve, and then Eve blames the snake. When we feel guilty, we recognize our actions, and we take responsibility. You're right, God, we ate the fruit you told us not to. We're sorry. But shame. It feels shame, we just pass it around. We're like, here, you can have some shame, and you can have some shame, and you should feel shame, because I'm feeling shame, so all of you need to as well. Now, as we continue in Genesis 3, we, we realize that when someone does something bad, there are consequences, right? Whether, whether they feel guilt or shame, this is a part of life. There are consequences of life. But when I'm feeling guilty about something I did, I'm much more prepared to accept the consequences. Yep, I did something wrong. I have to live with it. I have to accept it. I have to change it. I have to adjust. But when I'm feeling shame, I do not feel in any way prepared to accept the consequences. And I usually keep blaming. Adam and Eve have to live with the consequences of their actions, being able, not being able to live in the garden anymore. But here's the thing. Shame tells us that we're bad, and when others find out, they will leave us and not love us anymore. And so Adam and Eve say, well, if God can't find us, then he can't leave us, right? So they hide because they're in shame, and they feel like God isn't going to love them anymore. But that's not what God does here. Genesis 3:21 says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, I read that, and I see that that is such an act of, of empathy, of grace. 
that God sees them in their shame and meets them there and allows them to now be covered, that they don't have to be exposed anymore. And when Adam and Eve had to leave the garden, God didn't leave them. God didn't say, you are bad, no more relationship. Their story with God keeps going. They still get to be in relationship with God. God didn't say, you're bad. God says, I created you good. You are good. You did bad things, but I still love you, and I'm still going to provide for you, and I'm going to still help you be good. When I think about living without shame or being resilient to the toxins of shame, I, the verse that keeps coming to mind is John 10.10. 10. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in John 10, and I encourage you, if only for the being able to come back to it, if you have a Bible and you want to open up to it or your smartphone, just because I, I think that this is a, is a passage that if you want to read it over and over again, it'll speak truth over and over again. Um, but this verse, John 10.10, 10, says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus speaking says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The thief uses toxins such as shame to steal, kill, and destroy, to steal my joy, my wholeheartedness, my courage, my love, my empathy, and most importantly, to steal, kill, and destroy my connection with God and others. I actually want to read some of this passage. I'm going to um, read, uh, start with verse 2. John 10, verse 2, it says, The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, and the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. So Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This passage talks about Jesus being the good shepherd who, when the, when the thief comes, the sheep know which voice to listen to. When there's a stranger around, when there's, when there's other voices, the sheep don't listen and don't follow. They hear Jesus' voice, and they listen and follow Jesus. It talks about when the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that Jesus stands up to the thief and lays down his life for us. Instead of letting us be taken away by shame, Jesus lays down his life that we might have full lives, that we might be spared from the shame. When we're in the midst of shame, we have to listen for the voice of Jesus, our good shepherd. We have to know his voice calling us by name, calling us by our true identity, that we are good, that we are loved children of God. 
Now, I'm saying this to all of you, like, you need to listen to the voice of Jesus, but I fall into this pit of shame every day. I think all of us do. And so I need to hear it too. We all need to hear that we need to listen for the voice of Jesus. There are things in our life that, and I think all of us have different things, but there are things in our life, Brene calls them shame triggers, but they turn up that voice of the stranger, right? So it drowns out the voice of Jesus. Sometimes I know that I'm in this pit of shame, but I even just by knowing it doesn't mean I can get out, right? So what do we do when we're in the pit? What do we do when those voices of the stranger are so loud that we can't hear Jesus? Well, the only antidote for shame is empathy. Empathy is the medicine that we need when we're detoxing from shame. The opposite of shame is not shameless. It's, it's empathy, and it's the cure. So there are two parts of empathy, and, and the, the rest, a lot of this is, is research that Brene has done, and so you can Google it or find her books, but there are two parts of, of empathy. There's self-empathy and empathy for others. And in order for us to move from a place of shame to empathy, we have to experience and be able to give and receive both of those. So when we're in this pit of shame, Brene has this great image that she says in one of her podcasts, but it's like shame is this pit and you've fallen into this pit. And the only way out is to have someone walk by you from, you know, they're up there and you're looking, they're looking down on you and they say, they, they, they uh, respond with empathy. They say, oh, I've been in that pit before. I've experienced those feelings before. Here, let me come down. I know the way out. That's what empathy is. I know the way out, so let me help you out. Um, she, the opposite of this is sympathy. Sympathy is people stand up at the top of the pit and they say, oh, I feel so sorry for you. Good luck. And then they keep walking. <laughs> but empathy, we get down in because we've been there before and we can get out. And so self-empathy is talking to ourselves the same way that we would talk to someone else that we love. Oh, this sucks, but it's all right. We're going to get through this. So it's, that's self-empathy. When we're in shame, though, reaching out for empathy feels dangerous and risky. It feels like they're going to reject me. They're going to find out that I'm not worth any of this, and they're not going to respond with empathy. So it takes a lot of courage to reach out and say, I need empathy. I'm experiencing shame. And when we're in shame, it's, it's difficult when someone does reach out to us. It's difficult for us to be able to be like, they're offering me empathy. I'm not going to blame them. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be angry with them. It's really difficult to be able to say that, because really, what do we want to do when we're in shame? You get shame, and you get shame, and you get shame. But to be able to reach, to dig deep, and be able to say, I can accept their empathy. Um, there's, there's five defining attributes to empathy. To see the world as others see it, like perspective taking. So I can see like we all have different experiences and we all experience everything differently. And so when we're able to do that, we're able to offer empathy to others, um, to be non-judgmental. Judging often comes from a place where I say, 
usually I judge when I am insecure about that area. So I judge others based on, because I'm evaluating myself and my own abilities. But in order for us to authentically offer empathy, we have to stay out of a place of judgment for that situation. Three and four are to understand a person's feelings and then to be able to communicate your understanding of that person's feelings. These two are connected and have a lot to do with being able to recognize emotions, being able to speak them and and know what they are, frustration, embarrassment, fear, being overwhelmed. And that's to let the other person know that you see them. Empathy is all about connection. And this, um, those steps allow us to build connection with, with one another. I hear you and I see you. The last one is paying attention. Or a lot of people say mindfulness. Uh, Brene says pray, paying attention. Um, we have to pay attention to our words and our actions that cause shame for us and for others. And to be able to ask the question, what emotions do these conversations bring up in me and others? And actually being able to pay attention to what we're thinking and how we're responding. I think we've been taught that some people have empathy and others don't. I think I've even said that before. Oh, this person just doesn't have any empathy. So I'm just like, I'm going to cross it off their list for them. And I know that they're never going to respond that way. But through this work, I realized that empathy can be learned and practiced. And I know that I don't always have empathy. And I know why. Because sometimes I'm not ready to be out of a place of judgment. I want to judge. So I don't have empathy. So I can't say that I'm always a person of empathy. But it's a, learn, it's a learned thing, and it can be practiced. And this is what's going to stop the silent ec- epidemic of shame. Empathy. So empathy helps pull us out of the pit, right? So like when we're down in the pit... Someone comes by, oh, I know how to get out. Let's go. Empathy pulls us out of this pit. But eventually I get tired of falling in the pit, right? Eventually don't, you know, you're like, ah, I keep coming down. I'm in the same place all the time. I keep positioning out for empathy. So how do we keep from falling in the pit? And this is shame resilience. Shame resilience is ultimately about moving from shame to empathy, And the greatest tool for shame resilience is empathy. Uh, Resilience is not avoidance. We can't avoid shame. We're going to experience shame. We're going to be in places where shame might be a potential in our lives. So we can't avoid it. But shame resilience gives us the tools to recognize the shame when we experience it and move through it in a constructive way that allows us to maintain our authenticity, and grow from that experience. So we don't have to pass out shame anymore when we're in shame. We get to move through it without causing this hurdle of fear. So recognize it and move through it without compromising who I want to be. So there's four parts of shame resilience. Um, The first one is recognizing shame and understanding its triggers. So I need to be able to know, in order to stop falling in that pit, I need to be able to know what the pit is where it's coming from, when it's happening. This is where self-empathy plays a huge part. Being able to have that conversation with myself, I'm not a bad person, I did something wrong, or this is what this emotion is, is um, welling up inside of me. And then practicing critical awareness. Shame comes in on our experience and says, you are the only one who feels this, and you are bad, and you are the only one who's ever done this, and you are bad. But critical awareness allows us to zoom out and realize, nope, I'm not the only one who's ever experienced this, and it'll be okay. There are others. I'm not alone. 
The third one is reaching out. And this is the biggest one for me. Reaching out to someone who can offer that empathy. I might not be in the pit, but I still need someone to offer empathy up here or I'm going to fall in the pit. And this one is, is risky and it takes so much courage. And the last one is speaking shame. If we're going to detox and if we're going to stop this epidemic of shame, we have to be willing to normalize shame. We all know that we all experience it. And so we have to be able to speak about it and speak about the experience so that when it comes back, it won't have as much control over us. When we talk about it, it loses its its control. Now, shame isn't necessarily going to go away and but we can know how to respond to it when it comes. I will say this, though. Our culture has a way of shaming, right? A lot of the shame that we have experienced or that we have inside of us is because our culture has told us this is who belongs and then what is who doesn't. Our culture has told us that um, if you're rich, white, thin, male, educated, straight, professional, any of those, you belong, you're the in crowd. You're what everyone else is, is striving for. But that's not right. Our culture shouldn't tell us who should feel like they belong and who doesn't. Because all of us are good. All of us were created good. And we are all loved by God. We also have common pl- uh, phrases that are commonplace in our culture. Uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. Something that people say. Shame on you. Or actually stating things like, you're a bad boy. I think we say that to children, like, you're a bad boy, you're a bad girl, and so on. And I think if we, if we truly want to detox from shame, we have to be more aware, we have to pay attention to the words that we're saying and the way in which our words and our actions promote shame for ourselves as well as those around us. Everyone experiences shame differently, and the triggers for shame are different for everyone. You might not be aware of what causes a person shame, but when you become aware of that they've experienced shame because of something you've said or something that happened, um, responding with empathy for yourself in that situation as well as the other person is the sign that the detox has worked. So when we get out and when we move and we begin to build connection with other people, it's going to be messy and there's shame all around. So we're all feeling it. But when we respond with empathy, we know that, that God is working in each of us and that we can, can begin to live that full life that God created us for. Before we close, um, if the band wants to come back up, um, I want to remind us that detoxing doesn't happen overnight. And we're going to talk about like four or five different things in this, in this thing. So by this time next week, we'll all be rid of shame, right? Like, we'll come back next week ready to detox from the next thing that, that's going on. It's not how it works. Um, detoxing is, is an ongoing practice, and it's, gonna, and it's always going to take that resilience to keep it from coming back. So what we can do together as we move through this series as a community, um, as small groups, as, as friends and neighbors, is we can practice this together, that we can practice empathy and we can practice shame resilience. We can speak shame together with one another so that we can get it out in the open and um, 
just get rid of its power that it has on us. Um, there's lots of resources, like I said, about shame with Brene, with other researchers. Um, but I encourage you to talk to someone if, if you're in counseling or if you want to go to counseling um, or a friend and um, as a pastor and as someone who is practicing shame, resilience, and empathy, um, I'm also available to talk to. So if you are in shame, experiencing shame, want to talk more about it, um, I'd love to do that. Don't detox alone because you're not alone from any of these. Don't do it alone because God has created you for connection with others. Whatever you've been told about who you are, whatever you've done or not done, you are loved. Shame is strong, but the love of God is stronger. And there is nothing, there is nothing that can ever separate you from God's love. Let's pray. God of love. God of fullness and life. We ask that you would cleanse us from the pain that we've experienced. Cleanse us from the shame that is in us right now and those other toxins that are causing disconnection with the people around us and with you. Give us full and open hearts to receive your love and your grace and full lives that we may also give your love and your grace to others. God, we ask that you would give us the tools and the strength to use these tools so that we can fight against shame and other toxins that are just so prevalent. And give us ears to hear your voice calling out to us and saving us from the thief. By your power that brings the dead back to life, pray all of this stuff. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and...